My name is Justin the Clue, and I'm here today with Will Sloan and special guest Derek Schultz. Thank you very much for joining us, Derek. Yeah, thanks for uh, taking my payola. No problem. Yeah, as Derek just mentioned, he gave us lots of money for the Gold Ninja Video fundraiser, enough to get a guest spot on the Important Cinema Club. What a prestigious way to throw your money to the wind to see it. <laughs> hey, you could have made a thousand dollars, and I would have paid more. Oh, you know? damn so it. it's kind of on you. Yeah, yeah. I know. I'm glad to have Derek here. I would have had him on any time, honestly. <laughs> you know, Will such a big Derek fan. I would have. He didn't even have to pay. I would have had him. And today we're going to be talking about filmmaker Marie. Marie Menken. Is this someone, Derek, that gets talked a lot about when you're discussing the canonical experimental filmmakers? Sometimes. I mean, I think the thing is, canonical experimental filmmakers like Stan Brakhage have said, Marie Menken was the inspiration for most of my work, or like the biggest inspiration to me. So I think she gets talked about in that regard of like, she was really influential on other people. Let's talk about those people rather than her herself. So, you know. And had you yeah. heard about her before, Will? Yeah, I had seen a couple of her movies. Just like the, certain of these movies come up if you buy like those DVD sets of like the best of experimental film or if you go to a class or whatever. Like, I, I know I had at least seen Go, Go, Go. I think I had seen Lights. You know, they're kind of in the mix. It's funny to what Derek was saying. We I know we both watched a documentary this week from 2006 called uh, Notes on Marie Mankin. And I was a little disappointed by the documentary because so much of it was, I mean, it's got a rogues gallery. It has Brackages in it, Kenneth Angers in it, Jonas Mikas is in it, a bunch of, you know, the real real leading lights of experimental film. And I feel like so much time is spent on them in the documentary that I didn't quite get a, a great gist of who Marie Mankin even was after, you know, a hundred minutes of it. If you look up Marie Mankin's name, what you'll find is mostly, well, she and her husband were the basis for Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? Which I think says a lot about their, their relationship. It is pretty chaotic sounding. Yes, definitely a whole lot. So Derek, I know you've taught experimental film and you've also taught Marie Mankin's films. Could you talk a little bit about just what your classes have been and also like what do what do the kids think of Marie Mankin? I actually teach machine learning art classes at uh, both NYU and then pers- publicly as well. And I did a class maybe last year that was experimental film plus machine learning. So, you know, a lot of people who are really interested in sort of the tech side of new sort of experimental stuff. Uh, so we watched a lot of these films and then we tried to figure out how to make them work in machine learning processes. And I was kind of surprised because I thought I would show Marie Menken's work and people were like, wow, she was doing this in the 60s. And they were instead were like, OK, we've seen all that. That looks like stock footage film now. So, like, let's move on and talk about something else. Really? Like when they watched stuff like her most famous films, Lights, they reacted with, my kid could draw that. In some ways, yeah. I think it was also like, you know, Lights being that bouquet, the bouquet, I don't know how you pronounce that word, that sort of look. People are like, oh, yeah, you can just find stock footage of that on, on any website today. Or Go, 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 which I think predated a lot of the Super 8 films that you would see people were doing, like with all the sped up stuff. All that stuff has kind of become commonplace. And I think that maybe says something about how powerful she was or how influential she was. But I think it's also become sort of like, oh, we've seen that before. Or like, we've seen other people do that and maybe better. And therefore, we don't need to talk about Marie Mencken, which I think is probably one of the things about her that why she's not talked about as much. At that point when the kids were complaining, did you slowly put the Stan Brackage films away? And you're like, well, we're done watching experimental films now. Oh, no, I subjected them to like the eight hour long Michael Snow pieces. (laughs) Can I just say that I once saw Wavelength theatrically 
And it was followed by a one-hour documentary of Michael Snow's experimental jazz. It was just a camera on him at the piano for like an hour doing, you know, that stuff. And I gotta say, I, I do try to be an open-minded in, in the arts, but I after an hour of that, I did start to have a little bit of trouble. I thought that story <laughs> involved Michael Snow himself coming out. <laughs> like, there's a piano and he just played in front of the audience. He did Q&A after. <laughs> so that's the thing. You couldn't walk out because he was there. So when we're talking about Marie Menken, like what would you say are her important films, Derek? Well, I think the funny thing is, you know, as I mentioned, like, I don't know that I would point at any of her films and say these are important. I think it's more just sort of an approach to her. I think it's also the fact that she was in New York. She was slightly older than a lot of these other artists like Warhol, like Brackage. So she kind of has like a motherly figure for a lot of these artists. You know, she was experimenting with, with these cameras and doing it in a way that I think was approachable for many of the other artists. So they felt like they could go to her and sort of say like, hey, can you show me how to do this? Like I know Warhol really learned how to how to use a Bolex from her. And similarly, I think a lot of what she was doing, you know, she was really like using the Bolex as an instrument and experimenting with it and doing things that I think would have been unacceptable for a lot of other people. But because she was doing it in New York in these settings, that it was really like, you know, she was able to to play and other people were able to see that and say, like, I really enjoy what you're doing there. Let me take that a step further. Right. So that's really where like Brackage was really taking a lot of her editing work and other things and, and experimenting with it further. And there's also the element of them being like, we're men as well. So I think we'll probably get a little bit more attention yes, than this older so, yeah. woman trying to do these things. A little bit of background on her life. Uh, she was born in 1909 in Brooklyn to Lithuanian immigrant parents. She studied fine arts and industrial arts. And in her early adulthood, among other things, she worked as a secretary at the Guggenheim Museum while continuing to work on her craft as a painter. It was in 1931 that she met her husband, the poet Willard Mass. They married in 1937, although, as alluded to earlier, it was a difficult marriage. She painted, but a turning point came in 1943 when she did camera work on his film, The Geography of the Body, which is a series of close, intimately close, uncomfortably close, shots of human bodies, male and female, often uh, the erogenous and nether regions of, of men and women, in a way that make them look disgusting and alien, while I'm not even sure how to describe the narration that plays over it, but it's not complimentary narration. This helped introduce her to cinema. Derek, what can you say about that movie, Geography of the Body? Uh, how did their collaboration work on that? Yeah, I haven't really read too much about the close collaboration between her and Willard on that. I mean, I think both of them feature in that. So, you know, you're seeing their bodies in addition to them filming. I think Willard is is an interesting person, you know, and I'm sure we'll talk about this more. But he being a poet, I think he had a very successful early career in poetry. And I think he wanted to see that fame continue throughout his career. And I think he was... Uh, disappointed to find out that that would not really happen for him. So, you know, he was shooting films at the same time Marie was. He was also teaching poetry, I believe, maybe on Staten Island or somewhere. And I think, you know, you can kind of see the history of their 
coupling to sort of degrade as he gets further and further away from the success he wanted. And I think also he was probably putting some pressure on her too. I know that he w- he pressured her to, to finish a lot of her films. She was not an artist who wanted to necessarily finish and release her work. But I think Willard sort of saw it as maybe a way to sort of stay in the limelight if both of them were releasing work and, and, and that sort of thing. I think the history of experimental film and nudity is kind of an interesting one because it was an easy way for them to show their experimental work and get lots of people to watch because it kind of fell into that gray area of like pornography versus experimental film. So, you know, bracketed a lot of the same things. Like a lot of experimental artists were toying with nudity maybe to be tongue in cheek or to like, you know, rile up people. But I also think because it brought them a lot of fame and or it brought them viewers essentially through that. Yeah, like if it's the period where you're a young, growing man or woman and there's a promise of, oh boy, I could see some nudity in this short. Well, I'm going to be there, guaranteed. I mean, that's probably the main selling point for most people getting their friends to come see it beyond the challenge of what can these movies present. I mean, Menken is also very famous for taking the camera off of the tripod and giving the experimental scene this vivid, in-your-face, handheld feel. And that is present in all of her shorts, even starting at her first one, Visual Variations on Noguchi from 1945, which is like a bunch of shots kind of disconnected of this statue work. And she's trying to almost capture the light. And as she said in interviews, give it motion in some way. Yeah, and that piece, I mean, that was definitely a big piece for her. I mean, I think, you know, the traditional idea of like a documentary of like filming, you know, someone who's a sculpture artist would be you go in and you slowly shoot all these pieces, right? And you give a lot of emphasis to the artwork. And instead she walked in and started running around with a camera and people are like, whoa, what the hell is this? And from her, it's like her being an artist and using the sculpture as inspiration. And I think, you know, there's been a lot of discussion around her work as being very physical. And I think you see that then later in Brackage's work or in other, in other experimental artists work where it is about the camera being an extension of the body or I know Brackage was really, really strongly emphasizing trying to be like, this is what vision really is, right? When you close your eyes and you see through your eyelids, that's vision too. And that's what Brackage and Mencken were trying to capture was this idea of like this raw primordial vision and light. And that's what they were trying to show and highlight to people. And I think the Noguchi pieces kind of are the initial way for her to begin to do that. I know that, you know, Brackage and her are compared often to what you were saying about their vision. Brackage, a lot of his work is quite ugly, or, you know, if that maybe that's not quite the right word, but he, he wants to capture uh, life in in all of its all of its forms, whether it's, you know, the act of seeing with one's own eyes or Dog Star Man or, you know, the ones with the birth of a baby. Whereas it looks to me like Mencken was more interested in capturing beauty. Is it fair to say that that's a distinction between them? I definitely think that's one way to approach it. I do think, you know, Marie, I remember in that documentary, they sort of said Marie had like a childlike wonder with anything that she saw that she thought was beautiful, right? It could be broken glass and beer bottles, you know, on the street. But if the light was hitting it the right way and it reflected and gave it that sparkle, she was, you know, amazed by it and wanted to record it. And I think that that actually is part of, if we want to talk about sort of like feminist filmmaking in some ways, I think that's maybe one of Marie's approaches to her filmmaking that does differ from other men, from the men in experimental filmmaking. And maybe from some of the women as well, but I do think she was focused on capturing light. I think her background in sculpture and painting also kind of reflect that too. 
right? She, I think there were some paintings that I saw in that documentary where she would put like ground glass or something on the painting. So she was trying to capture that light. And in many ways, I think you can sort of see how the painting and, and the filmmaking joint come together. That feminist approach of finding beauty, even in ugliness, and that motherly sort of figure that she provided for filmmakers, for Moss's partners, like all these things, kind of just sort of creates the character that she was. And it should be noted that we mentioned her first uh, short, Visual Variations on Noguchi. And then, according to most listings, her next main release one was more than 10 years later, Hurry, Hurry, Hurry. And that you really don't feel that she starts pumping stuff out until like the 60s and that's when she gets involved with Warhol and all the other experimental filmmakers uh, around that New York scene as well isn't it Derek? A lot of it was I don't believe she had a camera for a while I remember reading something maybe in the Brackage book that some other filmmaker basically went off to either the Vietnam War or somewhere else or joined the military or something and left a Bolex at a shop and said if you want to go get it like here's the ticket for it go pay the 25 bucks or whatever to get this camera so I think it's also about you know she didn't have access to these tools i mean her and willard weren't poor like many of the other experimental artists but i think they still you know were not rich and i think that you know access to the camera probably became a big part of it and then once she had the camera learning the tools sort of playing with it um and as i mentioned she wasn't big on finishing her projects you know she was like many of us as artists get 80 percent of the way there and you like kind of feel like eh I'm done. That last 20% is going to be really hard. So let me not finish it. So I know even in the documentary, they showed she had reels upon reels of work. And a lot of it I've never seen, or I don't think has ever been completed. And I think that was, again, you know, Willard, toward the end of their career, she he pushed her to really finish stuff, add titles to it, finish it out. So yeah, there's a lot of gaps in, in her in her catalog, I think. One of her most famous shorts is Notebook from 1961. And that one is composed of like little bits and pieces that she had shot over a number of years. So you can understand that she could often run out, shoot something in that kind of burst of energy, sometimes not even with any intent. And she didn't really know what she was going to do with it, that it was the moment of creation that really mattered to her, not how it would be shown to an audience. Also feels like a precursor to some of Jonas Mikas's movies like Remembrances in the Life of a Happy Man, where it's these collections of stray footage that have been shot over the course of decades in some cases and assembled into something greater. The bulk of her work is from the 60s, though. Go, Go, Go uh, and Lights are probably two of the most famous ones. Lights is exactly what it sounds like. It's almost like an abstract painting on film just composed with a Bolex camera and Christmas lights and traffic lights and whatever other lights are available uh, with the camera moving in this dizzying, dazzling way. I believe it was Kenneth Anger in the documentary who said she had a feeling for movement and rhythm that felt like a dancer. And that really comes across in this short. I thought that Go, 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 which is this time-lapse movie about 11 minutes long of the city of New York during the course of a day. You see her camera racing through many different neighborhoods and areas, and I thought some really breathtaking moments in it that reminded me of lights. I'm thinking in particular, there's this overhead shot in Go, Go, Go of a traffic intersection where, you know, it's sped up, you see the cars going, and then you see the pedestrians crossing, and it sort of takes on these abstract patterns in the same way that the lights in lights do. Or there's another shot in Go, Go, Go of a construction site, a God's eye view shot where you see all of these construction workers, you know, dozens of them milling about, you know, looking not even like ants, like little abstract 
dots on a canvas. Or my other favorite shot in it is of the sped up shot of the tugboats in the East River just passing and and intersecting with each other like they're dancing with each other. In both lights and go, 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 it it feels like uh, she really takes familiar material objects and renders them into these abstract patterns, these abstract forms that move at a different rhythm. Something that I found fascinating about Lights is that it is a short that has a clear acceleration as it plays that when it begins you are seeing the christmas lights it's handheld shot with a camera but it's very understandable and it gets more and more frenetic as it goes until the lights themselves are just turned into blurs you're seeing stuff upside down you're seeing stuff in a car as you're zooming along and i think that's very understandable even if you don't have that much familiarity with the context that it was made in that oh wow i'm seeing something almost accelerating moving something that could not be seen by by the naked eye. It reminded me a lot, most of her shorts, of the cinema of early Sogo Ishii, the Japanese filmmaker, where he was also obsessed with the idea of like fast forward motion and that, you know, this adrenaline is pumping you so fast that everything becomes abstract. It makes a lot of sense of why something like Lights would be her most popular short because it's the easiest to understand as the same reason why something like Go, Go, Go where you're just seeing the everyday and it turns into kind of an abstract blur. Uh, To quote a paper that I glanced at while uh, doing research for this, uh, look at all of these university students graduating, turning into an anonymous blob, rushing through space. I'm just nodding, being like, "Mm -hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, A+. I mean, I think it's also really important to note, she's using the Bolex in a way that is unique to the Bolex. So I don't know, you know, for filmmakers or people who are unfamiliar with these cameras, like there is this technique uh, on the Bolex of the pixelation, which is you can take one shot at a time. So you can take one frame at a time and you can build that up into these fast sequences and go, go, go is a lot of that. And I think one of the things Brackage mentioned, he has a chapter on Marie in Film at Wit's End, I think is what it's called. I think one of the key skills of Marie was actually her editing ability, her ability to either edit in camera or edit once it was finished. And this editing is definitely something you see in all these films where we're talking frame by frame editing, which Doing that with a splicer and tape is a real big pain in the ass, but that was her craft and that was how she was able to edit all these things together, either in camera or through splicing. And it makes this very frenetic motion that I think many filmmakers later on would try to emulate either through Super 8 or through their own work. Again, it's also about, it's hard to construct a story for for non-narrative filmmaking, right? So it's either like, you know, how do I sequence these pieces And I think she sort of landed on this idea of things get faster and crazier and more motion and until they sort of like are at the point where they can't be contained and they just sort of burst out and then the film finishes. And I think there's a lot of use there that's really interesting. And you can see that stop motion a little bit in Notebook where she's just playing around with objects on a table as well as using it on a person in Andy Warhol by Miri Menken where Andy Warhol does a bunch of stop motion things where he's like building a box. Isn't this wacky? What is this Wizard of Speed and and Time or something like that? I I thought the Andy Warhol movie was interesting because um, I I mean it is beautiful in its way but it it conveyed 
uh, different things than some of the other Marie Mencken ones did. Like, it conveyed a great sense of not just what Warhol's world was, but just kind of the mundane day-to-day activities of Warhol Enterprises circa 1965. Like, a huge amount of it is spent, you know, it's shot in this very uh, frenetic style, for want of a better word, you know, that uh, Bolex silent style that Jonas Mikas would really adopt, comparable to that style. But in its fragmentary way, you see Warhol sort of wandering around the factory, supervising the creation of all these Brillo boxes. He has, you know, a small army of helpers who are making this stuff for him. There's an opening night party where you see all these people. Like, like the art itself seems so secondary. Okay, maybe I'm being unfair because there is a nice moment later in the short where, like, she pans her camera over all of his, uh, like, flower paintings, and they're, and they're quite lovely. But for a lot of the short... A lot of it is just spent on the day-to-day mundane task of creating all of this stuff. And you get the sense that Warhol's factory really was a factory. You know, it really was a business enterprise. And Warhol in this film, in the film's fragmentary way, comes off as like the president of the factory. Artificiality is the art, Will. (laughs) Uh, Let me show you these soup cans. Thank you very much. She had such a huge influence on Warhol and his filmmaking. And then she would feature in his films. And I think we also haven't even mentioned her relationship with Willard Moss, which is that uh, at some point Willard decided that he was only into men, but they stayed married. So they would become a fixture of of the gay scene, the gay art scene in New York, you know, which would bring in Warhol and bring in many other people. And I think it's just really fascinating that she would become, again, she sort of became like the mother hen of the gay art world. And she would feature in a lot of Warhol's films later on. You know, she would apparently take care of all of the men that Willard would discard after they were done. Just a really fascinating life. And one that I think had such an outsized influence because of her connections with these people. A lot of the people in that documentary that we all watch talk about how she was so influential, not just because of her work, but also she took them in. Like a lot of these people had nowhere else to go. And she let them basically stay in her apartment until they were able to get on their feet. And that can't be discounted. The fact that she put a roof over Stan Brakhage's head. Otherwise, could he have done the art that he did? I mean, probably not. Maybe he would have gone down a completely different path. And it should also be noted that during this period when she was helping all the experimental filmmakers, she was much older than them. And according to them as well, always drunk pretty much. Yeah, her and Moss had a very chaotic relationship, I would say, obviously being the influence for Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf will we'll highlight that. Like, not even just a little bit either. Like, the fact that uh, Miscarriage has a big part in Wolf was from their relationship. Like, Edward Albee, according to many people, would literally just sit and just listen to them argue for night after night, and then suddenly he had a play. And they were like, wow, that is really close to reality. Every artist mentioned that what they would do is just sit there and watch the two of them argue and get close to killing each other and just decide, when do I need to step in here, right? There was Kenneth Anger who was saying like, you know, they were fighting on like the rooftop of their apartment building. And Anger was like, I think I should get involved. But if I get involved, I might get killed with them. So I should avoid this. And I think that it's amazing in some ways that she was able to make such beautiful artwork in what sounds like such a chaotic and honestly, like depressing relationship. But for whatever reason, she found a way to make it work. It's also a difficult relationship, I think, to talk about because, I mean, clearly it was a relationship that, I I mean, the two of them were allies in the New York art world. The two of them clearly influenced each other a lot and helped each other a lot and were clearly close in a lot of different ways. Like, 
it sounds like a toxic relationship, but I don't know. It's hard to necessarily, as an outsider, make a judgment on whether it was good or not. Every article that you read about her loves to say, and then she died four days after her husband because she just could not go living on. And I'm like, yeah, that's one way to look at it, I guess. But everything else that gets discussed about them seems incredibly toxic and destructive. And by the end of their relationship, I believe she was the breadwinner. Like, she's the one who had a job. She worked late nights at a newspaper, and that was how they were able to survive. She did appear in a bunch of Warhol's film work, including Chelsea Girls, where she is a John Waters character brought to life, just screeching on camera. At the end of the day, when you look back on all the work that she did, I think that it still holds up. Like, it can still be watched and go, wow, this has an impact. It's not just, like, the proto version of what Stan Brackage would master. Like, she had her own perspective on these things, and she had a reason to make them and they still have value. You can still be watched. You look at Go, Go, Go. There have been so many like time-lapse movies, but I've never seen any of them that had images and, and like ideas for images quite like that one. Certain of the ways that, you know, through her camera eye, she saw objects moving through space and then, you know, rendered them poetically on screen. You know, I've never seen anything quite like it. And, you know, the same goes for lights. The same goes for so many of the other ones. Yeah, I don't think we even got to talk about like arabesque for uh, Kenneth Anger, but that's another one that stands out to me as a thing you've seen a lot of people do today, but at the time was probably unique. And she had a unique perspective on that work. And even amongst all the other New York filmmakers making film during that time, I think she had an outsized influence and It's interesting to me to think about like experimental film at that time was essentially like there was a New York scene and there was a San Francisco scene and the New York scene. They all knew each other. They all hung out at Willard's and uh, Marie's apartment. But you can see how her influence connected to every artist and you can see every New York experimental filmmaker from then sort of taking a lot of her ideas and finding their own path with it that I do think she's an artist that deserves to be sort of seen again and and really thought about more. And, you know, when we talk about female filmmakers and how what they can achieve and what they can't, I think her ability to foster a community, even as far back as the 60s, and, you know, get her films released and shown, I think it just highlights that she found a way to make it work amongst all these things. Having a full-time job, dealing with an alcoholic husband, probably her own alcoholism as well, and yet she still produced all this work. It's, it's pretty fascinating and, and honestly... Uh, shocking and, and surprising to see this much outpour of her work. So, as per usual, you can send us letters at Important Cinema Club Podcast at gmail.com. And our first letter this week is from Case Mount. And he goes, Hey, Justin and Will, I'm a big fan from Austin, Texas, and I've had a great time sifting through the back catalog of the show. Some of my favorite discoveries have been the work of Mickey Reese and the novel Flicker that Justin has mentioned a few times. While I know you're both from Canada, I'm curious to know if either of you were ever in Austin to see the recently closed I Love Video Store. For a long time, it was the largest video in Texas, if I recall correctly, and unfortunately closed its doors during COVID. There's currently a Kickstarter effort to reopen We Love Video, and it's being billed as a nonprofit cultural center of sorts in the hopes that grants and public support will keep the collection alive for rent. Do you think this is a viable idea to keep physical distribution around in our current era of streaming domination? Yes. 
Did you have a favorite video store in New York where you live, Derek? Uh, last time I went, I asked someone, are there any video stores still around here? And I got a resounding no. Yeah, I can't think of any video stores here in New York. I mean, sure, there are some. You know, I think what's also really interesting is at least here in New York, there's lots of these little collectives where people have lots of tapes or other like video playing tools and you can always go hang out with them. And it's a, it feels a little insular some days, but it is like an option for a lot of people to really... Uh, begin to experiment. And I would say actually when you go and meet up with these people, they're actually fairly nice and fairly welcoming. But you're kind of like always hesitant. You're like, are these people going to be freaks and murder me in their in their video basement? <laughs> or are they actually going to be nice? They're, they're nine times out of ten nice. And you just hope that you don't get the, the murderer people. So uh, I guess you're, uh, you haven't been around long enough to have gone to like Mondo Kim's, which was the famous video store that was in New York. No, I've only been in New York about a decade. So I think a lot of that stuff, you know, was closing around the time that I was coming here. I remember the first time I visited New York, I did go to Kim's video and I was like, wow, look at all this stuff. And now it's gone. The God, just, I assume all those tapes and bootleg DVDs have just been destroyed in a giant fire somewhere. But as to the question that the letter writer posed of like, is it viable to have uh, grants or uh, crowdfunding measures or all this and that to turn like beloved video stores into, you know, cultural spaces, institutions, nonprofits? Uh, I, I hope it is. Although, I don't know, that seems like a hard trick to pull off for more than just like Scarecrow and one or two other really iconic video stores. I mean, I struggle to believe, although I want to believe that there are enough like video stores remaining. Art grants, just throw all the art grants to these institutions. That's all you need to do. Where else is the money going? Actually, you know what? Yeah, I'm not I'm not going to argue that point. Why? Where else is the money going? Why not? I mean, we love the Spectacle Theater in New York. Have you ever visited that place, Derek? Yeah, it's great. I mean, I think there's so many great... I mean, obviously, one of the best things about New York is the number of theaters, right? Spectacle, anthology. Like, there's just that, like, so many little theaters that somehow survive here because there are enough art people in New York that they want to support it. So it's it's as much as I can complain about how New York has become gentrified, there are still these nice pockets of places where people can can support a community and, and have fun and watch some cool cool films. I should point out that I believe I did visit I Love Video because I visited Austin once with my pal Matthew. And the second day we were there, I told him, you're taking me to every video store in Austin. And I think he drove to every one. And I don't remember if I bought that much because... Did I create an account and make him rent stuff that I then ripped the DVD? I may have. That sounds like something that I would have done. So, yes, I probably visited it. And if I have vague memories of that one, I believe it was awesome. And I was like, whoa, I can't believe they have all of this stuff. Uh, the letter writer continues, while on the subject, you both seem pretty in the loop in regards to physical releases across the board. Where does one start when looking for hot new restorations or special releases? Boy, this is a big question. Where do you get your news, Will, of physical media releases? I like to go on the Diabolic DVD website and just see what's coming. Yeah, that's usually what I do, too. I mean, it seems there are now a million like Twitter and Facebook accounts that cover, these are the hot new releases, and I wish I could just find the special one that's like, just talk about what I want. Like, I don't need to know that there's like a Steelbook 4K of four weddings and a funeral coming out. I know you make money through Amazon, like collaboration, but just just the cool stuff, like only cool releases uh, on Blu-ray.com. Uh, there's also Blu-ray.com, which 
Uh, for advanced users only, I would say. That place is scary. Oh, I'll tell you where I also find my uh, find out about these releases. Sometimes Justin will DM them to me, and then sometimes I'll DM them to Justin. He's already heard about them, but I'll, I'll DM them to him anyway. And uh, collectively, I think we both find out through Twitter and through DMs. Do you collect physical media, Derek? Not physical film media. I have to limit myself. I have a lot of books, a lot of other things. Started buying actual film, which is, turns out, I didn't know this, but a, a full film, like an hour and a half long film, it's five reels of 35 millimeter film. That's a lot. It's huge, it's huge. for one movie. <laughs> that takes a lot of space. And living in New York, I don't have a lot of space. Uh, probably like the 35 millimeter print you're going to get to is like, it's not even that good. <laughs> I have this, these giant five reels sitting on my shelf. Yeah, it turns out that uh, I take up all this space and now my basement also smells like vinegar syndrome. So there's that too. No! Like I always look on eBay and I'm like, what are some new 35 millimeter things? And it's always haunted by like cheaper by the dozen. I'm like, who's buying that? Who's buying cheaper by the dozen on 35 millimeter? I will say I just brought... Oh, you should buy that, Justin. You've got a scanner. You can do a beautiful, beautiful shimmering scan of cheaper by the dozen that'll just bring back the memory of being in a multiplex in 2003. The theatrical experience. I hope it's all like damage and scratched and like Steve Martin's face is melting throughout I it. I did just get a 35 mil print of Bruno Matai's The Other Hell uh, off of eBay for like 150 Ooh, bucks. Oh, that's a non-sploitation <laughs> one, isn't it? Very red, very vinegar syndrome-y, but uh, yeah, I got it. So, you know, gonna gonna mess with it a little bit. I mean, most of those prints of the like Euro cult stuff that you'll find are like disintegrating <laughs> and there's not much you can do with them other than you want to screw with them or maybe torture an audience with them. That's the problem speaking of physical media media releases is that you're like oh i got a 35 millimeter print of i don't know zombie or something like that but it's so red you can't make it out and sometimes you're sitting in the theater being like hey this is fun but i could be watching this on blu-ray too i could make out what's going on unless it is a 60 millimeter print of godzilla versus mechagodzilla which is the only way it should be watched as red as hell full screen you know justin i was actually just thinking about that one time justin and i went uh, to a free screening of a 16 millimeter tv print pan and scan of godzilla versus mechagodzilla in the basement of a record store and it was beautiful. It was just it was just so great. Had I paid a single cent for it, I might not have been as happy about it. But free screening. Oh. Weren't they giving out free beer, too? That was like a magical evening. Oh, man. Anyway, uh, thank you very much for that letter. And our next one is from Andrew. And it goes, recently listened to your episode on Robin Wood. Besides the late great Mr. Ebert and Francois Truffaut's book, The Films in My Life, I have remained incredibly ignorant of film criticism, aside from those essays and Criterion and Eureka booklets. All this being the case, I decided to see if my university library had any books by Robin Wood. Spoiler, they did. Man, I hope so. If you have a film section and you don't have one book by Robin Wood in there, it's like, what do you do in library? And then I picked up the one that looked most interesting to me. Spoiler, Hollywood from Vietnam to Regan and beyond. I just finished reading the prologue. I am definitely on different planet from Robin Wood in terms of how we think, but find the writing to be clear, concise, and enjoyable. I can't wait to get into the actual essays, although I'll probably skip around a bit. So thanks for introducing me to a critic like Wood. Are there any others you would recommend? All the best, Andrew. This is a good uh, letter because we have Derek on the podcast right now. What are some of your favorite critics you like to recommend or read? You know, we talked about Gene Youngblood's Expanded Cinema. That's a big one for me. 
I think reading some of Brackage's writing is really fascinating because uh, he's a real showman when he comes to when it comes to writing. Uh, I don't know if you can believe a single thing he says, but it's really interesting to read. Jonas Mikas was an amazing writer, and Mikas is like, yes, yes, come and pay for it. You've fallen into my trap. You know, for me in the experimental cinema world, just having a film mentioned is enough. Like, Will, are you going to pull out of your hat a film critic we have never discussed before as a recommendation? Nah, I mean the people listening, they probably know which ones I like. You know, I like Rosenbaum. I like Hoberman. I like uh, all, all, all the classic ones. But you're mentioning Brackage's writing. What, what's the main book that he wrote that I'm I'm now forgetting the name of? Metaphors on Vision? That's it. You know, the opening like couple pages of Metaphors on Vision when he's giving his manifesto of like freeing the cinema and, and you know, what why can't cinema capture like all the colors that you see, you know, when your eyes are closed? God, it just had like just thinking of it has me like pumping my fist and saying, yes, you know, it, it's so powerful. I love Jonas Mika's writing so much, like the movie journal columns. But what's funny about him is I don't really go to him for film analysis exactly. I don't go to him to be to tell me why a movie's good. I go to him for just kind of like those articles are such great time capsules of the times they were being written in and just he captures a certain fervor for a revolution that never quite came. And it's nice to be in that headspace. But like he's he's a great promoter. Uh, more than he is a, a critic. I mean, he was a distributor as well of experimental cinema. So you read some of those articles and they're meant for the person to be like, I gotta see this. And then he was there to sell them that ticket. It is amazing though. You read that book and it actually does seem like every two weeks there's another like canonical masterpiece coming out. It's like John Cassavetes is making Shadows and then Brackage is making Dog Star Man. And then, you know, he's fighting court battles over flaming creatures or this or that. Like there's just so much going on. And then all of a sudden it'll be like Andy Warhol has made his first movie and it is monumental. And, you know, maybe he is a promoter, but it really is capturing just an incredible time when when it seems like all bets were off. You know, the sky was the limit and what could be done on film. You know, someone that I really like to hear talk about film and mostly even though he does a lot of writing in video form is Kim Newman in the UK. Like he's one of those guys that I don't think we've ever mentioned, but he does like a lot of commentaries. His novels are wild pop culture mashups where it's like the Blues Brothers meet Ed Gein. I think he recently did one where it's like Boris Karloff teams up with some someone else famous to solve a mystery like he is so tapped into that kind of stuff and on the dvd that severin put out of the jake west documentaries about like the censorship in britain there's like a four hour just special feature of every trailer of all of those video nasties and kim newman introduces every one of them and gives you like interesting context what they are i just love watching those and love hearing to him talk uh, one other person i do want to add that as we bring this up is and for Canadian folks, also, sorry to this, uh, the person that wrote in, they're getting all experimental stuff. And they're like, I don't give a shit about an experimental film at all. Um, but Stephen Broomer, who's another Canadian folk. Oh, big fan of Stephen Broomer. So he's doing a bunch of video series on Vimeo right now. Um, one is called Art and Trash, which sort of is like his experimental stuff and maybe some cult films. Does these beautiful like 15 minute sort of academic essays on each of these films. But he also has another series called Detours, which is all about the noir uh, filming of like 40s and 50s. So... 
If anyone's interested in more video essays, I think he's a great person to watch and listen to. Me and Steven Broomer have actually traded emails now and then, and he has a big project coming out that he asked some questions for something else that I was involved with. And I mean, it ties into something else that we talked about in a previous letter, and I'm very excited about about it. (laughs) This podcast paid by Steven Broomer. Steven has five or six books that are all worthwhile reads, and they're all 400 pages long. He just did a a new book, did he not? Moments of Perception, Experimental Film in Canada that people can read. Uh, I I just got a copy. I haven't had a chance to read it yet, but it looks very good. Yeah, he has like Code for uh, for North, Foundations of Canadian Avant-Garde Cinema. Doesn't he have one? that's all about like the film collective yeah that happened at hamilton as part of the mcmaster film board like that's what i love reading like those deep dives into very specific i have that book too yeah so uh (laughs) thank you very much for that letter and this week on our patreon we are returning to a topic that has been in the popular consciousness this week and that is albert pyun yes that's right the great albert pyun is Uh, having a difficult time. Uh, His wife says that he is gravely ill. And so we are returning to the topic. We'll be watching one of his movies. I'm not sure which one yet. I will say, Will, you can pick whichever one you want to watch. I can tell you I've seen it and can discuss it. Well, I mean, if the listeners don't know, if I I can add a a name of a favorite critic to that list, it is, of course, Justin DeClue for his magisterial (laughs) tome about about Albert Pugh and Radioactive Dreams, which you can get on Amazon. The book that really opened my eyes to the artistry of Albert Pugh. So we're going to watch one of them and, and just talk about him and maybe pick Justin's brain on what makes Albert Pion special? So you can listen to that. $5 a month at patreon.com slash The Important Cinema Club. And next week, I mean, Will's been in Germany for months now, years. I'm not really keeping track. And it's shocking that we have not done a German filmmaker yet. So what better time to talk about Mr. Wim Wenders? That's how you say his name, right? Yeah, I think so. I, I think that we're not just being stereotypical or, or doing an offensive accent doing that. I think that is how you say it. I want to say Wim Wenders, but I know that's not how you say his name. <laughs> like, it is not Wim Wenders. So, I mean, we should probably watch Wings of Desire. What else should we watch? Uh, do you want to go, like, really early on when he was in even his slower uh, meditative period and do, like... Kings of the Road about a projector repairman. Yeah, I, I I haven't watched that. I'd like to see that. And he has so many films as well. So it's like, we could watch Paris, Texas. I mean, I'm sure we, you've seen those already, so we can discuss them if they come up. He has so many films, and at least one third of them are good. <laughs> Will is dropping the gauntlet right now. Are you a Vim Vendors fan? I'm, I'm kind of on the side of Will. I feel like I've I've seen a couple of them and I'm like that was great, and I've seen other ones. And I was like, could have could have lost, could have dropped that Vendors one. Vendors is like, I got bills to pay, guys. These houses don't pay themselves. Uh, so thank you very much for coming on, Derek. Very knowledgeable. And do you have anything that you would like to? advertise stuff that people can check out any social media stuff oh wow this is how i make my money back here huh okay yep that's right i mean i guess i don't know if twitter is going to last till this recording's put up but um i'm dvsch on there if you want to follow me i just put out a project that people like that follow you might like uh it's called scream scenes all one word screamscenes.com and that is for the month of october i did 31 experimental video film pieces we basically chopped up 70 different horror films and are showing different parts of them or different ways to approach that corpus. Did a video a day, which was uh, a nightmare. Got very sick, you know, stressed out doing that. Um, so hopefully maybe people can watch that and uh, I'll feel better about it. <laughs> Not guaranteed. Not guaranteed. So thank you very much for joining us, Derek. My name has been Justin the Clue. I'm Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.
This is a reminder that I will be hosting a 14-hour holiday movie mind melter. All your favorite Christmas films will not be present, but hopefully we will be able to introduce you to some new and exciting ones. Some that are obvious, some that are not, some depressing, some happy. It's going to be a blast of a time, so I hope you'll join us. For more information on the Holiday Movie Mind Melter, check out my Twitter page at DeCluj, D-E-C-L-O-U-X, letter J, and the info is at the top of it. December 11th, starting at 11 a.m. at twitch.tv, Important Cinema Club. And we'd like to thank some of our new patrons to the Important Cinema Club Patreon page, who include Aaron, Jenkum Terry, Aaron Prichtika, Silvert Holm, Christopher Brown, Phil Brown, and Domenico Lo Buglio. Thank you very much for becoming patrons. We could not keep doing this without you. So a few days ago, I went to the Anne Frank house. Uh, obviously, it's good. <laughs> On a rating from one to five, what would you give it? Will? You know, it's funny. I, uh, I'm i not going to rate it, actually. At the end of the Anne Frank house, you know, it takes you all the way through the building where she hid. It, it guides you through room to room, all the all the rooms in the attic where uh, the various people that she was there with were in. And then at the very end, at the very end, you're led to a final room where they show you, like, memorabilia and posters and other knickknacks from like the various movies and stage plays that have been created about Anne Frank's life, which, you know, I watched the, I think, was it William Wyler who directed it? I watched the 1959 movie, The Diary of Anne Frank, when I was like 12 or 13. And I, I remember it pretty well. And seeing like images from it after being through the Anne Frank house is horrifying because like it's so fucking corny it's such a like shit Hollywood thing like it's Millie Perkins as Anne Frank who looks fully 10 years older than the actual Anne Frank and you know is just like you know could not look more Hollywood and I'm just I'm just remembering the movie now and how it has like like a love story of her and Peter. Yeah, the cover is Millie Perkins like kissing the male lead. It's like, wait, what the hell? Yeah, yeah. And I remember like the last scene is like the Nazis are like banging on the doors downstairs and you see all the people in the annex like sort of resigned to their fate and they're all getting dressed and they're all like, you know, putting their coats on and they're standing heroically by the door. And it's it's like, oh my God, it's I, I'm not building up to any coherent point, but... It's just so monstrous to see something like that. And then and then you see on the poster for The Diary of Anne Frank, the movie, it says, the motion picture screen is honored to present William Wyler's production of... Uh, George Stevens. Oh, George Stevens. Okay, same difference, whatever. It's honored to present, and it's just the hackiest Hollywood bullshit, but they're pretending that, oh, but but this is, this is very serious. This is the most serious movie ever made. I don't know, disgusting. Hated it. Just, I hate thinking about it. As you're walking through a museum that probably has a Anne Frank gift shop, you're like, awful, terrible. Uh, it does have an Anne Frank gift shop. I will say that <laughs> Mostly it's just the diary in, you know, dozens of translations. I would, so there wasn't like dolls or, you know, of all your favorite. There were there were some postcards, but you didn't know. I don't think there was a, a huggable Anne Frank that you could buy, no. I do like that Anne Frank the movie features Ed Wynn. And I mean, he must be, and Lou Jacoby. 
They must be hamming it up in those 180 oh, minutes. Oh, they sure are. And in fact, the museum had Shelley Winter's Oscar that she won for the movie at, <laughs> at the end of it. She was so shamed she had to give it away. I mean, this made me think of like adaptations and when is it exploitative and when is it not? Like how much into the public consciousness does it have to like kind of bake in before anyone can do what they want? Or is any kind of dramatization of this stuff exploitative no matter what you do? It's a good question because, I mean, as I was looking at these posters of various movies and plays, I thought, well, like the nicest thing you can say is that Holocaust awareness is a good thing, right? And it's good that people in 1959 probably went in droves to see this Oscar-nominated movie and, and had to think about the Holocaust for two and a half hours. But then, I mean the movie is just so fucking bad and tacky though like like is at what point at what point do just do the bad aesthetics of something outweigh and and in fact are actively counterproductive to any possible good that might come out of just the general principle of thinking about something like this is good at, at any time through any medium. On the Bay Street Video podcast, me and my co-host Mark Hansen used to go through every new release that came out every week. And I could not believe how many World War II films came out every week. Like, it's seemingly five. Like, you've never heard about them. This is what people like. They like these baked-in stories of, like, good and bad. It's very clear. There is a winner at the end. There's very rarely any shades of gray. That's why, like... These creatives keep going back to it again and again. And I hate it. I hate it so much. No more World War II movies. Boomers have the money. It's horrible as you describe it now, because actually that really shouldn't be the lesson of the Second World War and the Holocaust. The lesson should be that, like, we're all complicit or uh, we're, we're all potentially malleable into creating a tragedy like this. I don't know. It's awful that it's this... Uh, incredibly convenient narrative that is almost like formulaic comfort food for boomers. Um, yeah, what can I say? It's bad. Boomers should not be allowed to consume anything anymore. Unless, Derek, are you going to jump to the defense of boomers? We're like 10 years away from them all being in homes anyway. So I think we're good. <laughs> yeah, all the boomers are going to be put in homes and the children can't take care of them because they don't have any jobs that can pay that. So really, they've dug their own grave. 